Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be in John 18, 15 through 27. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in a synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Thank you, Elise. Keep your Bibles open to John uh, chapter 18. We're going to be looking right at the passage that she uh, read for you this morning. I'm going to ask you to join me uh, in a word of prayer as we get started. Father, we thank you uh, just for your goodness, God. We, we, we do... Uh, we do want your praise to always be on our lips, God. We want, we want this to be a place that always proclaims your faithfulness and your goodness. And so we just pray that you would be exalted in our midst today. God, we're thankful for each person that you brought here today. We know it's not by accident you have them here. And so we ask now that you would speak through your word and your people, uh, through the worship of your name, through everything that happens here today, God, to just um, reveal yourself to them, reveal the areas of, your life that, of their life that you want to work on, do whatever you wish in our midst today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the greatest marks of wisdom there is, is thinking of future consequences and results in making decisions. And on the flip side, one of the surest signs of foolishness is being super impulsive. And one of the great challenges of our day is that we are being trained to become more and more and more impulsive each passing day. Where almost every single advancement technology in the retail space is designed to get us what we want immediately. Right? For instance, when people used to want to communicate, you know what they did? They wrote letters and mailed them to each other. Right? And then after a while, they called people at their homes. If you weren't home, you couldn't answer the phone. Right? And then they called each other on cell phones. And then they texted each other. And now today, you can call, text, email, FaceTime, Skype, or write something totally useless and unnecessary on social media just from all of the little device in your pocket. Right? People used to have to drive to the bank and go inside. Right? And then they could go through the drive through And now there's ATMs. Now they have apps where you can take a picture of your paycheck and they'll deposit it for you. Now... I don't trust the internet with that, right? Because even though I'm relatively young, there's a lot of crusty old man in me. So I still go to the bank and walk my check in. But that's a me choice, right? I could, I could do it more on demand. Grocery stores are now offering you the chance to order your groceries online. You pull up to the curb and they bring it to you, right? You, young people, I'm about to blow your mind. Did you know that Netflix started as a service where they mailed you DVDs? 
Right? You, you'd pick something that you wanted to watch, and you had to wait two or three days for it to arrive in the mail. Can you imagine logging on Netflix now, choosing what you want to watch, and it's saying to you, this title will be available to you in 72 hours. Right? But you see, despite all these advancements, there have been some negative impacts on us as a people. Where we are with each passing generation becoming more and more and more impatient as a species. We are with each passing generation becoming more and more entitled. Right? Having been taught by all the society that we are important, uh, that we need to be catered to, that we deserve a platform to be heard on and more. And this is affecting our ability to make wise decisions. Right? Studies have shown that an immediate health effect will make more people change a habit than some distant greater threat. So here's what this means, right? If, if, if it could be proven that smoking a cigarette would make a patch, a, soul, a single patch of your hair turn gray by the end of the day, more people would stop smoking immediately than they do now. Knowing full well that smoking causes long-term catastrophic health issues like lung cancer and emphysema. But since the threat is perceived as something off in the future, it's not treated as real. And what this does is it makes us engage in this continual cycle of making poor decisions. The vast majority of Americans in polls and studies have said, they, they claim that they would like to lose weight. But most efforts fail because there isn't an immediate success. Right? So when the process becomes much easier if long-term goals are kept in mind. For instance, I'm going to give you a little, little tip here today. Did you know if you skipped on one, just one 12-ounce soda every day, you would lose four one-hundredths of a pound? That's not that exciting, is it? Right? No one's ever come up to you and, man, you're, kinda, you're slimming down. Did you lose four one-hundredths of a pound? Right? Did you know in a year that's 17 pounds? In two years that's 34 pounds? Right? But you see in the moment, right, in the moment that sugary goodness seems a whole lot more attractive than 0.04 pounds lost. Right? And so some of this that we can laugh at, but it gets dangerous when we as a people lose the ability to track trends. When we become slaves to the moment, when we're owned by the instantaneous, when we never come up for air long enough to think about where we're actually heading. And this can have disastrous results in our lives. Or one day we're going to be sitting in the mess of our own making and, and asking ourselves, how in the world did I end up here? Well, today in the book of John, we read about one of the greatest failures in all the Bible. Right? And the person who we see fail so miserably is the person who throughout the book of John believed the entire time he never would. And what I want us to see and grasp today is that Peter's failure was not spontaneous, right? It was a not spur the moment out of the blue failure. It was actually years in the making. So let's look at verse 15 of chapter 18, right where Elise started reading for you. Verse 15 says, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside of the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples are, too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them warming himself. So if you were here last week, then, then we covered together the betrayal of Jesus by Judas and how Jesus did not fight it, but he willingly surrendered to lesser authorities than himself. And this is and where we pick it up today in John 18. Jesus has already been arrested. He's being taken to the home of, of Annas, the high, a high-ranking Jewish priest, to be put on trial. And we're told that Peter and another disciple followed closely behind this procession. Now, John doesn't come out and tell us who this other disciple is, right? No one knows for sure. There's a small handful of theories. The one that's most likely is that it's John himself. But ultimately, it's irrelevant who the other disciple was. But whoever it was had connections. We're told twice that, that he knew the family of the high priest. And you must remember, 
The reason this matters is that the priests were very afraid of Jesus' popularity. There's a reason that they just arrested Jesus in the middle of the night away from the city in the garden. There's a reason that they're trying to have a trial in the wee hours of the morning while everyone else would be asleep. They're trying to keep this under wraps. They're trying to do this in secrecy. And so when they bring Jesus to Annas' house, there's security there. And you've you got to be on a list to get in. So they let this other disciple in because of his connection, but they don't let Peter in right away. He's stuck waiting outside, and so the other disciple goes and finds a servant girl, vouches for Peter, and convinces her to let Peter in. But before she lets him in, she has a really simple question for him. You're not one of this man's disciples too, are you? See, she's making sure that there's not a whole group of them gathering in order to stage a rescue. And in the Greek phrasing there, I want you to know, she's asking the question expecting a negative answer. She's not suspicious of him. She expects him to say no, right? And he says three simple little words, I'm not. Now, maybe in Peter's mind, this first one was really justified. Right? Maybe this is just something that he felt he needed to say in order to get in and be able to keep an eye on what's happening with Jesus. Maybe it felt like not a big deal to him. Now, but regardless, Mr. Self-assured, self-proclaimed, most devoted follower of Jesus was just given, him, given a chance to declare himself as a disciple of Jesus and in the presence, not of an army, not in a, of threatening soldiers, but in one little servant girl, he folded and denied being Jesus' disciple. And now he's in the courtyard, and I hope, I hope you see this one, how, how good a writer John is because he sets this up like a play, right? There's a lot happening, it's all happening at the exact same time. Because as Jesus is led in to stand before Annas, Peter denies and lies his way into the outer courtyard. It's a cold night, and so he goes over by a fire and stands with the others who were just part of the group that arrested Jesus. And while that's going on, John cuts to the scene that's happening inside the house. Look at verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his discipleship and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in synagogues or the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what, I, to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so inside the trial begins, and from the account in John and the other Gospels, we know that their goal is clear. They're looking for any reason at all to condemn Jesus to death. Right? Their goal is execution and execution alone. They will not stop until they get it. And so if they could accuse him of blasphemy or something else in the law that called for death, this is what they're going for. And so Annas begins to question Jesus about his teaching, right? About they want to know what he claimed, who he claimed to be, what he taught, what, the, what was the message he was spreading. And I love his response. He's like, guys, there's no secret here. I spoke openly wherever I went. In towns, I went to the synagogues. In Jerusalem, I went to the temple. I went to the most public and open places there were and taught. And you all have heard it. Everyone who's in those towns and in Jerusalem and the feast have heard it. I've been an open book from day one. And then he says something very interesting. Look at verse 21 again. He says, why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Now that answer got him slapped by some pathetic junior official on a power trip. But there was purpose in this answer. He's not actually dodging their question. He's already made an important shift. You see, Jesus is... Jesus' public teaching ministry is over. 
He has already taught his last public lesson. He's finished that part of the work that God the Father gave him. He said everything that his father asked him to. And now he must face the suffering. He must go to the cross and face death to fully finish the work that God has called him to do. But after the cross, Jesus will not go around and teach anymore. You don't find him in synagogues or the temple. That job is now passed on to those who've heard him. It's now given to those who have believed in him. Those who have received his words will now be commissioned by God himself to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Jesus is standing before this ruling council and letting them know this shift has already occurred. If you want to know what I said, if you want to know what I'm about, if you want to know what I called you to believe in, don't, you don't ask me anymore. You go and ask those who heard me. You go and ask those who are my own. You go and ask those who belong to me. And I need you all to understand this morning that if you are in Jesus Christ, this torch has been passed to you. If you believed in Christ, then you have been commissioned to carry on the very work that Jesus started. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 to 20 says this. It says, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is the Bible telling you that you were reconciled to God through Jesus. And once that's happened, once you've been made right with God, you are now charged with being an ambassador for Jesus. And your mission is this ministry of reconciliation, the Bible calls it. That you are to go and share the message that changed your life. That you are to go and to plead people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. This is huge. And we must understand this is for every believer in Christ. This is not for pastors and paid church staff members. It's not for those super Christians who are so devoted it makes you uncomfortable and convicted about your lack of devotion. It's not those who've been believers for years only. It's not the job of missionaries alone. It is the life calling of every single soul that has been saved by Jesus. And the ramifications of this know no bounds, right? This means that there's nothing in your life that exists by accident. There is a reason that you live in the neighborhood that you do. There's a reason that you work and the job that you do. There's a reason that you go to the classes that you go to. And the reason is always people. And all the places that God has put you in your life, that is your area of service. And, you are, and there, you're to be ambassadors for Jesus. It is in your neighborhoods and in your classrooms and your factories and offices and stores and more that you are to actively engage in this mission. You are to bring hope. You are to be an agent of good. You are to share the life-changing, eternity-altering, soul-saving message of Jesus. And there is nothing more important that you're to be doing with your life than that. There's nothing else you do that has eternal ramifications like this mission does. There's nothing else that we can give our time and devotion to that has more of a lasting impact. You, yes, you, are charged with continuing on the ministry that Jesus started. You are not to build your own kingdom. You are to serve and build his. You're not to bow at the altar of comfort and anonymity and playing it safe. You are to engage in this mission and watch God do amazing things in others' lives through your efforts. Man, what a gigantic waste it would be to have your job do nothing more than pay the bills. What a gigantic waste it would be for your house to do nothing more than provide you with a roof over your head. What a gigantic waste it would be for you to come out of high school or college with nothing more than a diploma or just a degree. God's plan is this, that if you want to know what Jesus is about, talk to those who know him. And talk to those who have heard his voice and can share his word with you. This is God's plan A for saving the world. There is no plan B. 
And if you belong to Christ this morning and you are not actively engaged in this mission, you are living in direct disobedience to the God who saved you. You simply don't get to punt on this. This is the mission of all who are in the church. We are called to be the light of Jesus in this world. Which makes what is happening outside right when Jesus said this so tragically ironic. Because just as Jesus declares this, just as he tells this counsel, if you want to know my teachings, talk to those who've heard me, Peter is outside. And Peter's heard everything that Jesus has ever taught. Peter, more than anyone, has been equipped to be a light for Jesus. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. Now again, the phrasing here matters. Because in the original Greek, they're asking in a way that they're expecting a negative answer. They don't think he's one of Jesus' disciples, but they're they're making sure. And this time it gets a little easier for Peter. He's already denied it once. It's what got him in the door. So what's it going to hurt to be consistent And given another chance to stand up for Jesus, Peter fails. And it's at this moment that it gets even more intense. Look at verse 26. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now, do you remember that poor Malchus from last week? Malchus is the guy that Peter tried to kill in the garden. I can tell you what, Malchus remembers Peter. Right, and around this fire, standing there with him is one of Malchus's relatives, and he's staring daggers into Peter's eyes because he recognizes him. That man was with Malchus in the garden. You don't forget the man who just tried to kill your relative. And so he says, didn't I see you in the garden? In the Greek there, he asked him in such a way that he expects a positive response. He's saying, no, wait a minute, I saw you. I know who you are. I know that you were out there. I know you're one of his disciples. And the other gospels were told that at this point, Peter starts to get desperate. And so he gets very animated. He starts yelling. He starts calling down curses on himself if he's lying. He denies knowing Jesus very vehemently because he's feeling trapped and threatened. And then what happens is the rooster crows. And that's when those words that have been bouncing around in his mind for most of the night come rushing back where Jesus said to him in John 13, really, Peter, you're really going to lay down your life for me? No, what's actually going to happen is you're going to disown me three times before the rooster crows. And that's exactly what he did. And the question is, how did, how did he get here? The most vocal, outspoken, confident, self-assured disciple in the group. How could he have possibly lost sight of who Jesus is? How could he have possibly denied the one who, while standing trial before lesser men, was still sovereign enough to signal a rooster to crow outside at the exact moment? How could he betray the one who knew Peter's heart and knew Peter's future, knew Peter's limitations and failures far better than Peter did? Well, well, he did it because this failing began long before this night. When Karina and I moved to Terre Haute, moved into our house back several years ago, one of the things that originally excited me about our place was there were several landscaping beds that had already been installed. And see, I've always enjoyed working outside. I just like being outside better than being inside. And so I thought it would be fun to maintain these beds. I thought. Right? But in the time since, I've aged seven years. We've added three kids to our family. Work responsibilities have increased significantly. Lawn equipment is broken. The budget has tightened, right? And now all of these landscaping beds are, to be frank, just a gigantic burden that I can't wait to get rid of. And they don't look good anymore because I'm not managing them well. But there, but there is something I've learned in this process, and I've tried to at least stay on top of this going forward. Have you noticed that weeds come without even trying? 
Right? You can ignore your landscape bed all you want. All your plants will die without care, but weeds will come and thrive, man, without you doing anything. Right? But there are a few weeds that are incredibly aggressive. Right? And over the course of the season, they actually grow up to become like little trees where the weed first sprouts. It's really weak and easy to pull out of the ground. But wait a month or two, and you're going to be pulling with all of your might to get that thing out. And wait even longer. I had this weed growing behind this large bush that was next to my house. I didn't even notice it. I didn't see it until it was sticking up in the back higher than the bush. And I'm telling you what, there's no pulling it out of the ground. I had to get a shovel and a saw. I had to dig down and saw that thing off of the roots, and I still didn't get it all. Every year, shoots come up off the roots that are still buried in the ground somewhere. And I can't help but think that if I'd just seen it when it was little, I could have pulled it out with hardly any effort at all. But over time, it was fed, and it grew, and it became a major issue. You see, Peter was the last one who would have expected himself to arrive at this point, Throughout the disciples' time of Jesus, Peter was the most outspoken. He was always the first to volunteer. He was the first one out of the boat. He was the first of all of them to declare his belief in Jesus. He was always the first to speak and the first to do something. But at some point, that enthusiasm shifted into sin. And the weed began growing in his heart. Where Peter began to take value from being the outspoken leader. He began to take pride in being the first to volunteer. And he began to lose his sight that his value came from being in Jesus. Peter's confidence in himself kept growing. His confidence in Jesus kept shrinking. And over time he just kept promoting himself. He kept trusting in himself. And he didn't see how it was killing him. John chapter 6, he speaks out. Not declaring his own belief, but he speaks out on behalf of every single disciple, saying that, don't worry, Jesus, we've all believed in you. As if he could ever know their hearts, Jesus corrects him immediately, pointing out that one of them is the devil and betray him. Later, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be arrested and killed, Peter has the audacity to pull Jesus to the side, tell him he's wrong, and try to correct him. This gets a strong rebuke from Jesus. In John chapter 13, Jesus tells him that where he is going, they cannot come. And again, Peter pushes back. He wants to go. And he says that he's so devoted to Jesus that he will die for him. And he never once considers, maybe I should just listen to what Jesus said. What if he had just listened and obeyed? What if he hadn't followed behind? What if he'd taken it to heart when Jesus told him, where I'm going, you can't come? Well, then there is no denial. And there is no failing. And there's no putting yourself in harm's way. You see, this bloated view of self, this, this overwhelming confidence in his own devotion, this complete lack of relying on Jesus, just built and built and built over time until it all comes to head on one night when he tries to commit murder and then denies knowing Jesus three times. And that small little weed had grown into a tree that choked out his heart. And what's worse is that Jesus saw it coming. He saw it coming ahead of time. He warned Peter about it, only Peter was unable to see it. He was just too full of himself. It's exactly like Judas with the money. First time Judas reached his hand in the bag, he probably thought it was little and harmless. But each time he reached back in, he gave more and more of his heart to that lesser God. And the weed grew bigger and bigger and it culminated in Judas betraying the God of the universe for just 30 pieces of silver. You see, it's time that we recognize that there are no such thing as small victories or small losses. It's time that we get and understand that the little things matter. 
This is why Jesus said that he who has been faithful with little will be entrusted with much, and he who has been fa- unfaithful with little will be entrusted with little. It's because choices matter, and trends matter, and things that you dis- dismiss as small are really actually battlegrounds for your heart. Every night on the news, man, you can turn the news and you're going to see stories of people whose trends came full circle, right? A pastor, a politician who's caught up in a scandal, a teacher who's committed lewd acts with their students, an employee arrested for stealing thousands of dollars from the company. Their trend has taken full circle. We hear about marriages uh, when they have completely failed. We hear about people who've turned their backs on their faith or how they were raised. And the response from the people who know them is always the same. How can they do this? I never thought it would be them. I never thought they would do this. I never thought that we would end up here. And it's because nobody wakes up one day out of the blue and decides to ruin their marriage. No one wakes up one day out of the blue and decides to steal from his or her employee. No one decides in an instant that they're going to risk their marriage and reputation and livelihood for a fleeting momentary sinful pleasure. No, there are hundreds of little steps leading up to those defining moments. And all the previous steps made that final one so much easier. What happened was that the weeds grew more and more and more until it consumed them because trends matter. Fear, in fact, I know that there will be endless amounts of middle-aged couples from my generation one day bemoaning the fact that their grown children don't seem to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. And they'll be bemoaning the fact because they didn't pay attention to the trend. Because they didn't grasp that kids learn far more from what you do than what you say. And so why mom and dad have this secure, firm relationship with Jesus, their children need to be taught how important that is. And at some point, it needs to become their own. But for countless families, this process is being cut short. Because their son or daughter shows an interest in a sport or extracurricular activity. And the story has played out again and again and again at nauseum. But we decide that we're going to sign them up. But we've got to make sure that we can still go to church. And it turns out that they have to miss just a little bit or some youth group in order to play. But they like, still go most of the time, so it's not that big of a deal. And then a coach or leader talks about how their child shows potential and promise. And so we'd love them to join this all-star travel team. Then it becomes, well, we'll just miss those one or two months a year. And what no one seems to realize is that once you break that cycle, it gets easier and easier and easier to break. And five years down the line, almost anything can be a reason to miss out on bringing your family to worship God together. And five years ago, that first compromise of missing just a little bit, they would have never guessed where they would have ended up. And what happens is mom and dad still believe they're just as committed and just as devoted as they always were. And they don't realize they've punted on some of the greatest forming years of their child's life. And if careful steps are not taken, what they've taught their children is that God is something you fit in when there's nothing else going on. And there's going to be a whole generation who watches in dismay when their grown children always have something else going on. And I don't want you to think that church attendance is the only standard for faithfulness. You can be here every week. You can be here today and get nothing out of this. Especially if you're here for the wrong reasons. But if you would commit to bringing your family, and mom and dad, you do so in a way that you come in pursuit of Jesus. You come to get more of him in your life. You come to worship him, and you come so your kids can see and know and be invested in by people who are spiritually where you want your children to be one day. It is an invaluable investment into your kids and one that is unmatched. But we've got to track the trend and make sure we aren't missing out on it. This is the father of Christ who for years... Kept a consistent, vibrant time with the Lord at the start of every day, but they hit a busy time of life and they missed a day, and then they missed another, and they missed another. And that builds in years past, and the relationship with God just isn't near what it once was. 
It's the person who's being more influenced by those around him or her who don't know Jesus and therefore have no reason to follow the standards of his word more so than they're influencing their friends. And so over time, they just give in a little more and more. And they've stopped building his kingdom. They've stopped trying to honor him with their lives and their conduct. And all along, they think they're at the same level they've always been. Most ironic thing about this story is that Peter, on the night that he denied knowing Jesus still three times, still thought he was the real deal. See, once a year we go to the doctor and have a physical. Once a year as a staff here, we go over staff reviews. Every 3,000 miles, you get an oil change to your car. And if you go to a mechanic, they're going to check out your car for you. And the purpose of all these things is to look for trends. It's to catch disasters before they become disasters. It's to reflect. It's to invite scrutiny and inspection in order to see if there's something small now that will be much bigger and cause trouble down the road. It's to pull out weeds before they become trees. In Psalm 139, David prays, and when he prays, he asks God to search him and search his heart and see and reveal if there's any unclean or unpleasing way in him. And what I'm telling you this morning is that from time to time, you need a soul checkup. We need a spiritual, physical. We need to invite scrutiny and inspection from God, from our spouses, from trusted and brothers and sisters in Christ who love us and can hold us accountable. And I'm challenging you to do this today. I want you to actually take a real look at your life and your decision and your direction, especially your trends. And I want you to invite God's input on this. Let me ask you, how are you trending this morning? Think back just one month from today. Would you say that you are closer to Jesus today than you were one month ago? Or would you say that you feel further from him now than you did then? And, and let me ask you, what would play into that answer? How many days in the last month have you spent time in God's word? How many days have you conversed with him in prayer? And is that more or less than you did in the previous month? How many times in the last couple months did you come and bring your family to church? How many times did you miss out on that completely because you had something else going on? And is that more or less than you did the previous couple months? Is that more or less than you did last year or two years ago or five years ago? How many of us in here today have a habitual sin, this consistent sin in your life that you just cannot shake? How many of us have one building to that and we just simply haven't recognized it yet? When's the last time you shared that with a trusted brother or sister in Christ? When's the last time that you sought counseling for it? When's the last time you made a real sacrifice in your efforts to find freedom from it? Husbands and wives, how is your marriage trending? Do you communicate more regularly now than you did three months ago, or is it less? Husbands, are you still showing her romantic gestures and displays of your love? Are you simply just coasting? Wives, do you encourage and build up your husband with your words, or do you critique and run him down more than you build him up? And what did that ratio look like six months ago? What did that look like a year ago? Parents, are you yelling at your kids more or less nowadays? Are you encouraging them more or less? Are you leading them spiritually and praying with them and reading the Bible with them more or less than you did a few months ago or a year ago? Take inventory. Are you using your stuff and your possessions and your home and your money all on you? Is it just all about you? Are you taking those things that the Lord has given you and using them to serve and bless other people and build his kingdom? And how does your current level of investment in his kingdom compare to six months ago? Is there anyone in your life that you were actively praying for their salvation? 
Is there anyone that you're praying and asking God to give you chances and opportunities to share the hope of Jesus with them? Or is that simply just not a part of your life right now? Was it one year ago? I mean, how are you trending? Right, these are good questions to ask in your relationships, good questions to ask about your career and schooling. It's good questions to ask about your life. How are you trending? It is so crucial that we catch negative trends before they build and make a complete and total mess of our lives. It's so crucial that we ask God for the awareness of our trends before we go years without reversing them. And it's crucial that we realize that no matter what, it is not too late for us. For starters, since trends begin with really little steps, they can be reversed with really little steps. There's a village in France, a little tiny village called Les Chambon. And during the time of World War II, when, when Germany conquered France, the Nazis came through France and it took all the Jews who were living in France to concentration camps and almost every town folded. Almost every town willingly turned the Jews over to the French or to the Nazis in, the, in their midst, except for one little village, Les Chambon. Are the only, they're among the only people in France who, when the time came, hid and protected the Jewish people living around them from destruction. And after the war, here in the story, there's an author named Field Hale who traveled to Le Chambon to see if he could figure out why they were different. And he went expecting to find some big reason that they were so brave and so heroic, he found nothing of the sort. In fact, after years of research and interviewing everyone in town, he could only attribute it to one thing. He said almost everyone in this little village were consistent attenders at their church in town. And week by week, their pastor faithfully delivered messages from the word. Week by week, they gathered, praying and asking God for their chance to do something in his name. And over time, they became by habit people who just knew what to do and they did it. And when the time came for them to be courageous, the day the Nazis came in town, they quietly did what was right. One old woman, when she was interviewed, told, her they told him that she'd faked a heart attack when the Nazis came to her house. And she later said, a pastor always taught us there comes a time in every life when a person is asked to do something for Jesus. When our time came without even asking, we knew what to do. You see, the really good news is that trends can be reversed with the smallest of steps. Write your wife a note telling her the ways that you love her. Tell your kids today how proud you are of being their parent. Tell your husband how much you appreciate the sacrifices that he makes on behalf of your family. Get up 15 minutes earlier this week and just start your day with Jesus. Pray on your way to work instead of listening to the radio. Just say no. Will you just once say no to commitment that will take your family away from church, keeping the long-range goals of your parenting in mind? Invite someone to lunch this week who does not know Christ. Invest in them. Share his hope with them. Pray and ask God to identify the people in your life that he has put there for you to invest in and share his hope with. Just take a small step. Do little things and you will learn quickly that the little things matter. And lastly, this needs to be said. Because there may be some in our midst here today who believe that for you it's just too late. That your trend has come full circle. Your weed has grew into a full-blown tree. And you have brought pain and destruction in your life. You have ruined relationships. And you, you are somewhere that you've never guessed you would be one day. And if that's you, you've got a choice today. You have a choice to decide what you're going to do about it. We have two examples from this story. Judas's trend came full circle and he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And when the pain and regret of his decision hit him, he tried to fix it himself by returning the money. When that didn't work, he ran off by himself and took his own life. 
And at the end of the book that we're studying, the end of John, we're going to find Peter jumping out of a boat, swimming as fast as he can, and running to the feet of Jesus. And face to face with Jesus Christ, he's going to admit out loud his failing and his sin. And Jesus will meet him there with overwhelming grace, forgiveness, and love. And he will fully restore Peter. Because I'm telling you that no matter how far you've trended, no matter how bad it's gotten, no matter what you've done, it is not too late for you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, not your successes. He died on, because of your failures, not your victories. He died knowing you were going to screw up. So run to him today. Find forgiveness. Find help. Find hope. Find purpose. Find life change. And find it in the only place that you can in the gracious, loving, and incredibly powerful embrace of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the dire warnings of your word that are there to protect us, that are there to save us, that are there to keep us, that are there to point out to us, remind us the trends matter. God, the direction that we're heading as a person, the direction we're heading as a couple, the direction we're heading as a family matters. And so, Lord, I, I pray that around this room we'd invite your scrutiny this morning. God, that we'd invite your inspection. You'd show us ways that, that, that we're... We're quite honestly just trending in the wrong direction. God, help us around this room to pull out weeds before they become trees. And Lord, if there's someone who is just in a mess of their own making, God, God, that this has trended all the way, help them to know that it's never too late for them. Help them to turn into the loving, gracious, and forgiving arms of Jesus. Help them to fall at his feet today. We ask all this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.